0: Let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion by having a few moments of silent prayer. During that time, it gives us the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of who and what You are, the God of the universe, and yet You are still mindful of us, and You have revealed the great and mighty things for us. We pray that we will have the good sense, the positive volition, to take advantage of all the grace things that You've given us, the grace system of perception whereby we can understand the whole realm of doctrine, and we pray that You will help us to concentrate this morning. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get into our regular study, I thought I'd say a few words about uh, Palm Sunday. I don't know if you know it or not, but that's what uh, today is. At least that's what a lot of people call it. And I thought that I would give you some background, a little bit of information on what that day is about from a biblical perspective there's a lot of misunderstanding about it so please open your bibles to thank you to Matthew 21 verse 1 Matthew 21 verse 1 This is when our Lord was going to make His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was His grace that did this. He was giving the Jews one last opportunity to accept Him as their King and their Messiah. And so we begin in verse 1, of verse 21. When they had approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethagi, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. There's quite a few things, just as we read through this, that, may not jump off the page to you. First of all, it's a bit strange that they're going to go into a town. Here's a donkey and a colt next to it. And if somebody says, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? They say, my Lord had need of it. And they're going to say, okay. That's not normal, is it? Somebody, I mean, that was transportation in their day. If you were going out to the parking lot after church and you were about to get in your car and someone came in, got in, happened to leave the keys in it, and they started up. and you said, hey, what are you doing? So said, oh, well, uh, my Lord had needs of this. Said, oh, okay, well, go ahead. <laughs> a bit unusual, isn't it? Another thing, if you don't know much about donkeys, uh, when you have a mama donkey here in a little colt, to be able to go up and lead that colt away... Without the mama throwing a conniption fit, probably kicking and biting and so forth. Now, that's a bit strange, also, for a mama donkey to allow someone to take the colt and just lead it away, and that the colt would come. This is not normal. Verse 4. Now, this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. By the way, this was Zechariah, and the prophecy can be found in Zechariah 9, 9. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So much of what Christ did was prophesied. Every bit of this was fulfilling prophecy. And the disciples went, this is verse 6, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, brought the donkey and the colt and laid them on their garments, laid on them their garments on which he sat, because they were wanting him to have a, a nice a smooth ride. And brought the donkey and the colt and laid their garments on, uh, laid on their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. There's some other things that I think is, that are interesting. First of all, they, they're not certain, but they think that Christ came through the golden gate when he came in this time, which was the entrance of kings. Normally, he would go through the sheep gate, which was the entrance that they would bring the animals to be sacrificed. So he was making his triumphal entry to demonstrate who he was and giving the people the opportunity to accept him. Now, in verse 8, we see that they spread their garments in, in front of the road, or over the road in front of him. And others were cutting branches. From the trees and spreading them in the road now, this is why they call this day palm sunday now we're not certain where whether it was palm branches that they were uh, laying in front of christ as he rode in but it probably was because there's an abundance or was an abundance of palm trees that date palms and it's not uh, out of the ordinary that they would do that it was a custom in the uh, ancient east to cover the path of someone that was worthy of the highest honor. And we see this in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, where they did the same thing for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. They would lay branches in front of him as he came in. But there's really more significance to these branches than that. Why branches? And why palm branches? Indeed, if they were palm branches, which I think there may have been some other branches, but I think there was palm branches also. Because if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, palm branches are used sometimes to celebrate in order to make note of a victory. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. So there is some, something significant about palm branches and it being in the hands of people. You don't have to go here, but I'll read this to you. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, again, it uses the uh, palm branches. Verse 40 says, Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of the beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. They would take these branches and they would wave them as part of celebration. So this was fitting and it was, it was good that they were doing this, but the branches go even further than that. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1. It was very important that the people recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And the Messiah had to come from the line of Jesse and from the tribe of Judah. They knew this. So in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says Then a shoot will spring up from the stem of Jesse. Uh, the stem would be maybe a stump. The stem here, as a shoot, will spring up from the stem of Jesse, or you could say from the line of Jesse. He would be descended from Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Underline branch there. This is a messianic title for Jesus Christ the branch, and it's explaining Christ's genealogy. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and then it goes goes forward. So you see the significance of the branches. I taught something called the Star Series a while back. I've had people as of late wanting me to teach that again but in that particular series there is in the constellation virgo if you've ever if you know anything about astronomy you'll see that she's holding a branch and that is referring to the virgin birth and the branch being another uh, messianic title that jesus christ did come from the line of david so there is some significance there with regards uh, to the branch. Now back to Matthew chapter 21. Verse 9. Matthew 21, 9. The multitudes going before him And those who were following after him were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, he was much more than a prophet, wasn't he? But let's deal with this word here, Hosanna. I want you to underline that word. Keep your place here in Matthew. I want you to turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 22. And some of you have already done this, but maybe some of you have not. I want you to take your pen and make a bracket or like a big parenthesis to the side of verse 22 and 23. I want those two to be linked. And then in your margin, put a little notation with an arrow to those two verses that says, First Advent. Now, you know, the first advent is referring to Jesus Christ being born of a virgin, becoming the God-man. It's talking about his incarnation. So connect those two verses, put a little notation, first advent. Now, let's read what it says, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who is that talking about? Jesus Christ, isn't it? This is the Lord's doing. Now, in context, you might underline this and just put a cross there. This is symbolic of the cross. This is what He has done. He has gone to the cross and paid for the salvation of of all mankind. This This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So in the first advent, Jesus Christ came became true humanity and true deity, united in one person. And he went to the cross, and it was marvelous in our sight. Verse 23. Oh, that was verse 23. Okay, this is the Lord's doing. is marvelous in our sight. Now, verse 24 through 26, I want you to make another bracket. Connect those three verses. You can do it with a parenthesis. Somehow connect those verses, and then in your margin... Right, Second Advent. Now, this is referring to Jesus Christ returning to set up His millennial kingdom. Now, the verses between these verses, 24 through 26, are going to be describing the Second Advent. So we connected those three, put a little... Notation there, Second Advent. Now let's read these verses. Verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, what is that talking about? It's talking about Jesus Christ coming out of heaven on a white horse to set up his millennial kingdom. And they're saying this would be, this is absolutely wonderful that he's going to do this. Let us rejoice and be glad. Verse twenty-five. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Now, I want you to underline the words, do save. Do save. Underline those words. And I hope you have room in your margin. By the way, if you buy a Bible in the future, get one with wide margins. You need to put a lot of notations there. If you have a little of these skinny margins, it's harder to do. But if you can't do it, what you can do is put a little asterisk, a little dot or something, then go somewhere on your page where you have more room and put a dot, and then you can reference the notes to it. So though in the Hebrew, those two words, do save, is Yasha Na. That's Y A S H A. Is one word, Y A S H A, and what's significant about that word? What does that word mean, by the way? It means save. It comes from our what we know as Yeshua or Yeshua, which means Savior, which is the Lord is our Savior. Yasha, and then second word you want to put. Nah, na. What they were saying there was, Yasha-Nah. Save now. Now, in context, this is talking about at the second advent, the Jews are going to be between a rock and a hard place. They are going to, it looks like, they're going to be uh, completely obliterated, and they are going, and they are going to be sing, singing out, Save now. Save us now for the second advent. Now, it goes on to say in verse 26, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, all that is talking about the second advent. You got that. Now, turn back to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 9. Matthew. Verse 9, And the multitudes going before him and those following behind him, after him, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, that Hosanna is was transliterated from the Hebrew, Yashana only they're saying Hosanna. You got it? They're saying, Save us now. Were they talking about save us from our sins? No. They wanted to be saved from the tyranny of Rome. They were occupied territory. So they were saying they were singing the wrong song, weren't they? They should have been singing back here in uh, Psalm 118, they should have been singing verses 22 through 23 because that was going that's what was going down within that week the Lord would go to the cross. But they weren't singing that. They didn't want the cross. They wanted to be saved from Rome. And they were singing, yashana only it's translated here, Hosanna. Save us from the Romans when what they really wanted or should have wanted is to be saved from the penalty of sin, which Christ accomplished. It's interesting that they were singing this and lauding and applauding Jesus Christ as he rode in. And within, within a three days, they would be singing or shouting out, Crucify him, crucify him. Do you think man isn't fickle? So now you know more about Palm Sunday, which they say is today. Any questions for our press on? Yes. Y A S H A. That's the first word. A. That's the first word. And then there's a space. Second word is N A. not Yasha Na. Na. And it's translated Hosanna. We sing a phrase song. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Now when you sing it, maybe it'll be more meaningful. Okay. Now we're going to switch gears. We're going to get back into our study of the divine domain with regards to the fundamentals. We're still on the fundamentals. We've been there a while. But we're we're getting close. When I get through when I get to the tenth floor, we're done. And I've got something something else in plan. In in mind. Okay. <clears throat> So we are on the sixth floor of the divine domain. Remember, the divine domain is a visual to show you how you can matriculate up the floors to get to the penthouse, which is just uh, sharing the happiness of God. It has to do with your growth, your spiritual growth, while you're spending time on planet Earth. And the sixth floor has to do with the personal sense of eternal destiny. That's what we're dealing with. If you like, you can look up here. And we left off last time, essentially, on the fact that your attitude towards God and His Word is going to determine whether you're headed for fame or shame. Which is it going to be for you? No one can determine it other than you. And the decisions that you make now are going to determine for all eternity what your status is going to be. Now, it's not, going to decide, uh, it's not going to determine whether you're going to heaven or not. I didn't say that, and I didn't mean that. It has to do with your status as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, church-age believer, royal family for all eternity. What are the privileges and opportunities that you're going to have for all eternity are determined now? Be in heaven, but well, what is it going to be like? We went over First John chapter two verse twenty-eight. I went into it de- in detail last time, so I'll just read it now. Maybe that'll refresh your mind a bit, and then we're going to press on. First John two twenty-eight, and now little children abide in Him or abide in it. And I explained it could be either way, because you have, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the. Personal pronoun, it's a dative singular masculine, and it can be masculine or neuter, so it could be translated it or him. So if you want to take it that you are to abide in it, it would be the divine domain. It would be in that palace. In other words, continue to be in that place of blessing, which we call the filling of the Holy Spirit. Continue to abide in it, and when you're abiding in it, you're abiding in him. When you're abiding in him, you're abiding in it. Okay? I wish you could see your faces. (laughs) But I'm not, I went over it. If you don't get it, you can get the uh, CD. So, so then, so, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You need to know that Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming to gather you and myself and all other believers in the church age. And he's going to take us back home with him. And there's going to be something that happens right about that same time, and that's going to be the judgment seat of Christ, where every one of us are going to be evaluated by Jesus Christ. Is that scary to you? I don't know. Um, just seeing Jesus Christ is a blow-mine. That's what my good friend up in Arkansas says all the time. He says, he says, that's a blow mind. It blows your mind. This person that we worship, this person that we celebrate, this person that we are depending on for our eternal destiny, we are going to see face to face. That's going to be something. If we are all still alive when He returns... Uh, we won't suffer physical death. Our bodies will be instantly changed into a resurrection body that is ready for heaven, for eternity. It won't grow old, no aches, no pain. Boy, it's going to be wonderful. And, of course, you can go vertical. And uh, you don't need a helicopter or a rocket either. So when he appears that we might have confidence and not shrink away, Do you want to have confidence when He appears that you don't have to say, Oh, man, you know, I want to see Christ. I mean, this is going to be a blow mine. This is going to be great. But I know what's coming next. He's going to sit down face to face with me and say, Okay, let's take a look. What are you going to be doing? Like this? You can have confidence. You see, the more that you grow, the more that you learn, The more that your life is changing to line up with Christ's life, the more confidence you can have. Confidence that you you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to shrink away. You don't have to bury your head in your hands. You can just simply, I'm here. Anything that I've done is because of your grace. I don't get any credit anyway. That's where we want to get to that point to where you're not worried or concerned about it. In fact, you can even be looking forward to it. But you can't look forward to it if you don't have a personal sense of eternal destiny. And that personal sense of eternal destiny just doesn't happen. You can come to this church every time the doors are open, including Friday night at the movies. And it won't make any difference whatsoever with regards to what you're going to be thinking and what's going to take place to the judgment seat of Christ. Just being here doesn't count. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit and concentrating on the Word, hearing it, believing it, and then you can apply it. And that takes place over the long haul, over the course of your life to the point to where you don't have to be afraid and shrink away. That's what's at stake. That we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame. Oop, there you go. I got the escape button. I know where it is. Okay. Let's go to Second 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. That first word there, study, is spudazo. S-P-O-U-D-A-Z-O. I use that as A password one time. One thing about it: if you use any of these words like "prosdecao" or "spudanzo," or you could even use "elpis," I don't think that has enough letters in it. Though you can use a lot of these Greek words, and you don't have to worry about somebody else having them. That's the neat thing. Anyway, "spudanzo" means to be diligent. It means to be hungry. It means to be aggressive. Hungry for what? Hungry for God's truth. That's why you should be here, by the way. is because you're hungry. You cannot get enough of God. And every time that you study His Word, you get another piece of the puzzle. And you can't wait to get that next piece, the next piece, the next piece. And all of a sudden, it starts coming into focus. And you start going... The more that you can see of Him, the more you want Him. That is Spudanzo. So, we need to show ourselves to be approved unto God. Now, this being approved has nothing to do with eternal salvation with regards to being saved. It has everything to do with what happens after you're saved. That's what people don't understand. You don't have to do anything other than believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But after that, there is a lot of things that have to take place. You have to learn something. You have to grow in grace and knowledge. Be approved unto God. A workman. Wow! Workman? Are you a workman? Are you a woman? Are you a work teenager? Teenagers can work too. A workman produces divine good. He knows what's acceptable to God. He knows how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When he sins, he acknowledges his sins. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And everything that he does, from that perspective, is divine good. And he is a workman. Do you know right now you are working in that sense? If you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're concentrating on this Word, then it is Bending and changing your mind to line up with the mind of Christ. And that's being a good workman. You're not a workman just because you come through these double doors. You're a workman when you sit down, you concentrate on the filling of the Holy Spirit. You're assimilating that information. You say, but I'm not doing anything. That's not what the work is. It's what God is doing. God is doing it. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you don't have to come here and every time you're going to take a test and your, your whole status, everything is depending upon you and how you do on that test. If that was the case, half of you wouldn't even come back. It's happening right as I speak. Because the Lord is working in you and through you to produce glory for Himself. Needeth not to be ashamed. You see, if you have spudanzo and you have been producing divine good because you are a workman, the Holy Spirit is working through you, you have no reason to be ashamed. Ashamed when? Now? Well, yeah, partly. Partly. you have no reason to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ when you stand before Jesus Christ. You know that every person here, I assume all of you are believers, but if you're not, I'll have a little something to say at the end. But Every one of you here right now has the opportunity to hear those most, the greatest words from Jesus Christ. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That can happen for you. And if he says that to you, that means for the rest of eternity, you're going to be eating prime rib. Forget pork and beans. Rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, if you're not diligent, if you don't have spudazzo, then you're not going to be able to rightly divide the word of truth, God's word. I'm glad they... They had uh, that they translated this study. It can mean study, but it can also be be diligent, be eager, be hungry. But I like study because that's what we do. We study God's word. We sit down and we meditate upon it, and we compare scripture with scripture, and we listen to what the hopefully the prepared pastor has for you. And it's like eating a meal. And when you're done, when you walk out of here, you ought to feel full. In fact, you ought to say, "I can't take any more. That's all I can handle for today." That's what Daniel said, you know. God sent the angel Gabriel to him and was showing him what's going to happen throughout the ages. And Daniel said, "I can't take it." Oh boy, he just fell down. He had to have an angel come over there, pick him up. That's so we get it in doses. We get it a here. We get about an hour at a time. And then you get that, you feed on that, you meditate on it, you come back and say, "Okay, I got another layer of truth. Now let's get another layer." Well, that's the way it works. Philippians chapter one, verse nineteen through twenty. This is Paul speaking. Paul uses this word a lot. He's look at this. He says, "For I know." Paul knew something. He wants you to know something, and God wants you to know something. That's why it's recorded in His Word. For I know that this shall not turn out for my, excuse me, <clears throat> shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation. Notice I have that underlined, have an asterisk by it. And he was expecting something because he knew something about doctrine and hope. Got two asterisks by that one. That I shall not be put to shame in anything. That hope isn't that, oh boy, I hope that when I get before the Lord, I'm not going to be embarrassed. No, it's confidence. He had that confidence that he's not going to be ashamed in anything. Why? Because he was doing what any of us can do. And that is just grow in grace and knowledge and fulfill the plan that God has for you. God has a specific plan for every person here. Your life has... A direction and a plan that God has designed for you, but you will never go there if you are ignorant. If you remain ignorant and want to live by your emotions, and go to churches and sing, Do Lord, how uh, do you remember me?" From then on, well, then you're not going to have that confidence. You know, I like that song. I, you know, I've got a home in glory. I'll shine the sun away. Beyond You know, I I can get down to that song. But the part do Lord do you remember me? Do Why would you question that? He's with you every single second. He knows what you're thinking right now. Why would you be singing, Do you remember me? Of course he remembers you. You better Know that He remembers you. He is our only hope. I don't know. I just get off on Lord. I just wish it had a little bit better of lyrics right there. So we have earnest expectation. That's what I want to zero in on. And here you have the Greek word for it. Apokaradokia. A-P-O-K-A-R-A-D-O-K-I-A. It means to expect earnestly attentive or earnest expectations are looking for. It's a compound word. You have, first of all, apa, A-P-O, which means from. Then you have kara, K-A-R-A, which means head, plus dekomai, which means to stretch or uh, to lengthen. Literally, as with the neck stretched out and the head thrust forward. That's what that word means. Now, if you're really interested in something, for instance, here's an example. Uh, the, the boss calls you into his office, and you go in there, and he says, I've got information for you. you got something here. Right here on this paper, I've written a number, and this is your raise. I'm going to give you a raise. What would you do? Huh? Wouldn't you stretch out the neck and look at your head like that? Well, that is dokia anxiously, oh, Martin, you're anticipating this. I mean, I can't believe that somebody would, under those conditions, say, oh, okay. Is that all? And walk away? Would you do that? I don't think so. So that word means to, when it says earnest expectation. See, he had a very anxious, a very um, deep expectation from the knowledge he had and the hope. here's the the two little asterisks here. Hope means desire of some good with confident expectation of receiving it. In the English, we use hope today like, I hope I win the lottery. But this is confidence. He had confidence in that. Then we have Galatians chapter 5, verse 5. For we, through the Spirit, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, by faith, believing in God's word, are waiting. Waiting is an expression of hope. Then you have, for the hope, absolute confidence of righteousness. Won't y'all go to this verse because you need? To, I need to straighten something out in this verse <clears throat> for you to understand perfectly clear. By the way, you can get your pen out and write some of these little things I have in brackets there so you get the full meaning. We are waiting for the hope, confidence of righteousness. To underline the word righteousness, this is very important. this is why I want you to go to this verse. This is not repeat. This is not imputed righteousness from God. We don't hope for that. Why? We already have it, don't we? How do we know we have it? Where would we go in the Bible to prove that we have it? And some of you are straining already. I can see you. (laughs) Romans 4, 5. All right? Y'all want to say it with me? And to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as what? Righteousness. It's credited to him, credited to him as righteousness. You already have God's righteousness. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you have his righteousness. Can you be better than God? Can you improve on God's righteousness? You're accepted before Him. You have His own righteousness. That's not what this verse is talking about. It's talking about capacity righteousness. What that means is that Paul had the confident expectation that he was going to grow in capacity to where he would do the right thing. That's what capacity righteousness, if you boil it down, really is. It's the capacity to do what's right. That's what the Bible is trying to teach us believers is how to get it right and when you have enough doctrine your soul is saturated with the word of God then you have capacity righteousness meaning you have the capacity to do what is right it doesn't matter what the circumstances are you have divine viewpoint and it doesn't matter whether the is, issue may be uh, marriage, it may be um, suing your brother it may be a host of things. it doesn't matter you have capacity righteousness you know what to do you know how to do it right but what I wanted to show you again is waiting is that confident expectation the last time we went over these in fact remember I passed over all I've been going, what I've been doing again today in order to get to the next few things that I'm going to show you y'all remember that? I just was really motivated to teach what's coming next. So I just skipped over this, what I've been teaching today for the most part, and went to it. It's so great to recognize that a pastor has the authority to do that, and I don't have to go to some hierarchy. Is it all right if I do this? So, this is what we went over. Some live in the past thinking that their best years are behind them. There's no zeal, enthusiasm, excitement, or passion, or wonder in them. What does the Bible say? Let go of the past. Leaving those things behind and moving forward. The fact that you're still breathing means that God still has something for you to do. And the only way you can accomplish it is to grow in grace and knowledge. That's what He wants you to do. And apply those things. So get out of the past and start thinking about the future. Whatever you did in the past, it really doesn't matter anyway. Whether it was good or bad, do you ever think of that? Some people are so impressed with something they did in the past. Every time they meet somebody, they say, Oh, yeah, well, I won the Nobel Peace Prize. Oh, yeah, I won the gold medal in the Olympics. Oh, yeah, that's all they can think about. Get over it. And then there's other people that can't think about anything other than what they did bad in the past. (laughs) Oh, I'll never be anything, you know, I'll just they just dredge up the past and it haunts them all the time. Get out of it. Think about the future. That's where we're headed. Most believers live in the present. They are consumed with the details of life. They don't have time to think about the past, and they are afraid to think about the future. Have you ever run into people like that? You tell them about the judgment seat of Christ, or you even talk to them about what's going to happen after you die. Oh, I don't know. All I know is i got to go for the gusto. Well, the gusto doesn't last. And it won't carry you through the hard times either. The only reality to them is the issues that they must deal with now. What God has to say has little, if anything, to do with their lives. They live for themselves, amassing as much money and pleasure as they possibly can and purposely avoid any thoughts concerning eternity because they are ignorant of the eternity. They don't know what the promises of God are. It's a big black question mark to them, and they are afraid. And so we're not to live in the present either. We have to deal with the details of life, yes, but we can't be consumed with them. We have to make time fight for time in our own minds to think about the things that are eternal, and those are the invisible things of God. And then the last part here. A few believers live in the future with the future clearly in view. They realize that the decisions they make now will determine their what their eternal destiny will be like. Get that in your mind. We are just preparing for what's next. That's why we're here. We're in training. And if all you do is think about, well, you know, my schedule, uh, can you come over Saturday night? I don't know, let me get my day planner out. Nah, 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 nah. Some people live by their day planner. I told you, I'm much too smart for that. I just carry my list in my head. Don't ask me how that's working for me either. God promises rewards. <clears throat> is more real to them than the temporary pleasures of living for self. I didn't have this last time. This is is new. There's a big difference between living a life with little or no expectations for the future and living life with a personal sense of destiny. There is a difference. The decisions that you make, your everyday decisions, will be determined by whether you're thinking in the past or the, or the now or in the future. Let me get this up high. Personal sense of destiny motivates a believer to make the right decisions, even though it is usually the harder thing to do. Now, you're going to make decisions the rest of the day. You'll make decisions tomorrow, the next day, and the next day, and so forth. And here's how a personal sense of destiny kicks in. It's our nature to want to take the easy path. Do whatever's easiest. Most of the time, doing the right thing is the harder thing to do. But if you recognize that you're in training and the decisions you make now are going to have great rewards... And benefit for all eternity. It motivates you to do the right thing now. You develop capacity righteousness through the Bible. You know how to do it. You know what is the right thing to do. And then you have the motivation to do it. Do that hard thing. Because life isn't just about right now. Most of the time that you have, hadn't even got here yet. It's yet future. And I'm not talking about this little brief little span we have on earth. I'm talking about all eternity. You've got to do the harder thing usually to do the right thing. If you're thinking about eternity, you're going to be motivated to do the right thing. Even on the small thing. You go to HEB. I'm going to give you an illustration. You go to HEB. And you go through the store and you look at the prices and you start getting gray hair just like me. How can they charge what they do? Beans cost more than steak used to. Go in the produce section, be in store for a shop. So anyway, you, you buy a melon and it's they say they're $7 a piece. You go through the line, and they look at it, and they say, Okay, well, uh, that's going to be $2. It's mismarked, or it goes wrong in their cash register somehow. And you're standing there, and you're thinking, Okay, $2, huh? Hmm. Now, you can rationalize. You can say, Well, you know what? I ought to go ahead and let it go at $2, because they charge way too much anyway. Don't they? I owe it to myself to at least get this one break. Nobody's ever going to know I could use that extra five bucks. Just let it slide. That's easy to do, isn't it? The harder thing to do is, uh, ma'am, I'm sorry, uh, this was uh, Miss Mark It said $7 on it, not 2 And then watch her. She's going to be shocked. Hardly anybody does that because nobody takes the right road anymore, hardly. Why would you do that? Because you want to live a life pleasing to God? Yes, that's true. But if deep down inside you know that this is just a test on your way of being trained that's going to mean something sometime, for all eternity it's going to make a difference, then that's how a personal sense of destiny can change your thinking about everything because you make decisions every day. How many chances do you have to take the easy route? What are you going to do when you stand before Jesus Christ in your entire life? All you did was take the easy route. You didn't even know what the right route was because you never studied to show thyself approved. I like this. This is, look at it. I have it in, oh, I don't even have it up there. I thought it was up there. Here it is. Look at that, in bold. Here it is right here. Think about this. It helps to remember that you are eternal creatures in a temporary body. That's what you are, and that's what I am. You are an eternal creature. What about if there's an unbeliever here? Maybe. Are you an eternal creature? Absolutely. Absolutely. When God gave you soul life, it's permanent. By the way, you know what God made your soul life out of? He made your soul life out of the same thing He made the universe out of, and that's nothing. You try that. Start with nothing and come up with something. And it lasts forever. The question is, first of all, where will you spend your, your eternity? For the unbeliever, it's going to be the lake of fire. It's going to be separated from God from all eternity. For the believer, it's going to be in heaven with him. But the next question is, how are you going to spend that eternity? Heaven is not going to be an equal opportunity employer. So you're you're eternal creature in a temporary body. Think of that. That might help you think about in terms of what you do now with a personal sense of destiny has great importance. Some people think that, well, I'm not I don't count, I'm a nobody, nobody cares anything about me. Not true. The angels are watching, God is watching. He's got a plan for you. He wants you to execute it. And you can be a hero for all eternity. Not that that's our goal. Our goal isn't that we go out and, oh, we can can strut about in heaven. That's not the right attitude. But the attitude is that God has given us that opportunity, the ability to do that. Why did he do it? Because we're something, no, because it glorifies him the more He can bless you, not only in time, but in eternity also, the more He's glorified. And if you are a dumb bunny believer that never does anything with their spiritual life on earth, then for all eternity, even if you're in heaven, you're not going to have things that others have. And for people, oh, oh, God's equal, God's equal, he's not equal. There's nothing equal about it. There's no equality here, there's not going to be any equality in heaven either. You are an eternal creature in a human body. I'm going to close on this last point right here. If you don't have a personal sense of destiny but would like to have one, I hope that you're doing some self evaluation you start thinking, you know, I really haven't been thinking about eternity much lately. In fact, I haven't been thinking about it at all. It's not too late. If you want one, then you must make a conscious decision to become a winner believer by taking the the offensive by learning and applying spiritual dynamics that God has provided for you and His grace. You can't just in one decision say, Okay, I'm going to be a winner believer. I'm going to have a personal sense of destiny because I made that decision and now it's going to happen. Can you do that? No, but you can make a decision every single day. And you do make a decision every single day. Whether you're going to have a personal sense of destiny or not depends upon your attitude towards not only God but His Word. Your attitude, by the way, towards God is your attitude towards His Word. And if you have a carefree, flippant, cavalier, nonchalant attitude towards His Word, you have the same attitude Towards him. And you will stand before Jesus Christ. And he's going to be asking you, What's up? I don't say this to scare you, I say it to motivate you. You bunch of eternal creatures, you. I can't wait till we all get to heaven. And out of this veil of tears, and I want to see you shine. I'm telling you, you can make a difference starting now. I want everyone to please close your eyes and bow your head. There may be someone here who does not know Jesus Christ. To them, the issue isn't what will I be in eternity, but where will I be in eternity? Your decision today can seal that decision. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross and died for your sin. He, he was buried and rose on the third day and offers eternal life to anyone who trusts Him and Him alone for it. Your righteous deeds, the best that you can offer God, is totally unacceptable. It, it is as filthy rags in His sight. So now you can do the smartest thing that you'll ever do in your entire life, and that is recognize that Jesus Christ is your Savior and there is no hope in anyone or anything else. Simply by acknowledging in your own mind that you are accepting Him as your Savior, trusting Him and His work rather than your own, means that you will be born again, that you have eternal life and will be in heaven with Christ. Then the issue becomes what type of eternal destiny will you have. Father, we're so thankful for your word, for the time that you have given us to gather ourselves together here, to feed upon your mighty word. We pray that you will help us to focus our lives on what is really important, the invisible things that are eternal, our spiritual life, and growing ever closer to You through Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His mighty name that we pray. Amen.